Welcome, welcome, welcome to Chromatic Distortion with Corey Caesar. I think it's the age of the ideas that person's presenting and is that person able to present these ideas. Freedom is a young idea. It's only been tested for a couple hundred years and we had a taste of it and we're throwing it away. But what I see others are doing, they have old ideas. It's totalitarian. It's a control of government, government policing the world, militarism, telling people how to run their lives, running the economy, telling people what they can put in their mouths and whether or not they can even drink raw milk. It's just, it's just absolutely out of control. But the idea that individuals are free, that they have a natural right to their life and the liberty and they ought to be able to keep the fruits of their labor, that is a young idea. So I would say people ought to go with a young idea in somebody that can express them. Testicles one, two, testicles one, two. What's going on, all you beautiful bastards and all you beautiful people that have a father in your life? Welcome back to Chromatic Distortion. I'm your host, that mildly mischievous Corey Caesar. R uh, real quick plug make sure you check out episode 83 of Musically Meditated Podcast with host Joe Riley featuring your boy. Uh, we did a review. Revisit, relive on Atmosphere's album God Loves Ugly. It's a great album. That's a great episode. You can listen to it on all podcast platforms or watch it uh, and see my pretty face on YouTube. Um, I promised you guys back to back episodes in the near future, and uh, I should be delivering on that promise. Next Monday, I'll be discussing some experiments, the humankind, more specifically, MK Ultra, the Milgram experiment, Project Midnight climax and uh a little baby named albert today though we are going to talk about some uh atrocities that happened in the 20th century and how we shouldn't lose um the historical context of what actually took place here and why it took place because that's important right what's that saying those who forget history are soon to repeat it um now guys just for the reference, because I want you guys to understand, when I use the terms socialism or communism, I mean centrally planned governments, right? Because the economic policy in both systems are 100% interchangeably. They're interchangeable. It's 100%. Um, socialism is the economic policy and philosophy. Communism is a form of socialism. It's the economic policy with political doctrine attached. In other words, it's not the free market. And before you all start shouting about the Nordic countries like Sweden and Denmark being socialist, I really strongly suggest you take an actual look at their economies. They have mixed economies, just like we have. Mainly a free market with some government interjections or some central government planning. In fact, though... These countries that you speak of as being socialist operate a freer market than we do. And that's a fact. Yep. Freer market than us. The Heritage Foundation each year gives every country an economic freedom rating. So they use tons of markers to measure how free uh, and unrestricted the market is by their governments. In 2018, Hong Kong. Hong Kong, guys was the most capitalist country in the world. Fucking crazy, right? Sweden, that country you claim has democratic socialism, had the fourth freest market in the world. Denmark ranked 12th. Most of Europe is in front of us. We landed 18th on that list, which is actually a few spots up even. Because we've been on a multi-year decline. And just for some context of where we are on that list, 
We sit right above Malaysia. Fucking Malaysia. In freedoms, guys. Economic freedoms. So it's slightly ironic, to me at least, that you only blame our issues on like the capitalistic parts of our economy, but never even mention the socialism that's been injected in, uh, into it more and more every year with things only seem, uh, seemingly getting worse as a result, right? Like you guys claim everything's getting worse. Well, we, we're kind of like going towards socialism as prices rise and pay stays the same. I don't know. Maybe there's a connection. Maybe there's not. Um, but you claim you want to be like these Nordic countries. And I actually agree. We should be more like them. But you want to achieve this uh, in the opposite way they did it. They deregulated. They took government out of business. Um, just for reference, Denmark doesn't even have a minimum wage law. You know, for all those people that want $15 minimum wage, that's fine. I, don't, I mean, I don't really care about that. But I'm just saying, it's not, it's not what these people did. Um, so let's take a look at what's going on right now and how it relates to the 20th century uh, economic and political movements that didn't end very well for the people. Because we do have some historical context here. Um, it is a great irony that at a time when Facebook and Twitter are closing accounts of conservatives for allegedly promoting hate, right? Um, and conservative speakers are banned from college campuses for, as it is charged, peddling hate, Opinion polls suggest that socialism is more popular than ever among college students and in progressive precincts, uh, precincts of the Democratic Party. Bernie Sanders, a self-proclaimed socialist, is the most popular figure among progressive Democrats at the moment, while uh, Alexandria Osceo-Cortez has emerged from the Bronx as the newest socialist celebrity and is traveling the country singing the virtues of socialism as if no one has heard those songs before, right? Uh, which raises the question. Given our loose standards on the subject of how the left is defining quote-unquote hate, why isn't socialism a hate crime? After all, the evidence for its uh, uh, malignant effects is obvious to anyone with sufficient curiosity to look at the historical record because it's there the socialist movement has been responsible for the murder imprisonment torture of many millions and perhaps hundreds of millions of innocent people during its heyday in the 20th century that history of murder and tyranny continues on a smaller scale today in a handful of countries living under the misfortune of socialism for example, in recent history, Cuba, North Korea, Vietnam, and most recently, Venezuela. Now, Venezuela, I think, is the closest and most relatable to our situation and the more likely of outcome we will face, in my opinion. So I'll, I'll get a little deeper um, into Venezuela towards the end when we cover them, okay? Um, so how do socialists escape the indictment that, in the view of historical record, they are the purveyors, uh, purveyors of tyranny and mass murder. Well, they deny it. Simple. They deny that Stalin, Mao, and the others were true socialists. And indeed, that socialism, socialism has never really been tried. A manifest absurdity, guys. It's an, that's a manifest absurdity. Senator Sanders and others claim that they are for something called, and I know you guys have all heard this and you're all peddling it, democratic socialism, right? A popular and peaceful version of the doctrine. But that's also what Lenin, Mao, and Castro said. You know, until they seized power and immediately began to sing a different tune. Democracy and diversity are what they say when out of power. Tyranny and authoritarianism are what, uh, are what they practice once in power. That's a tried and true technique of all socialist movements. It happened every time. Because think about it. In order to centralize the means of production, you have to give the state or government the authority to use force to remove property and give it to others. If you don't take it first, the system can't work. 
these tangible assets don't just magically and miraculously leave one person's hand and appear in another's. The government has to take it. They have to seize it. Have you even thought about that at all? Like if you own a business and we nationalize your industry, aka the government now controls the means of production, the distribution, and the cost of your product, you just going to hand it over? No questions asked? This thing you invested personal time and money into to build? So tell me, are you, the person listening right now, are you cool with uh, whatever the majority votes to take from someone else? We just take it. And by take, I mean use force. Because that's the only thing that makes it democratic socialism, guys. Is if we vote for it to start instead of a revolution to force it on people. That's the only difference. Sorry Sorry to burst your bubble. Now, in order to keep it democratic socialism, you have to hold the majority vote forever to maintain it. Think about that. If you're voting for socialism, you have to have the majority forever. Which is why voting and socialism don't really mix. And why it always leads to communism. Ooh. So are you, again, actually willing to throw people in jail for not handing over property, money, or assets to the government? Are you willing to do this? In, uh, and, and, and if you are willing to do this, in what way is that not authoritarian? And how would you punish your political foes? Uh, uh, and, how, and how would not, uh, uh, punishing your political foes not be making you slightly more communist? I mean, they, they're already setting you up kind of in a way to make this easy for you to justify, right? Demonizing and criminalizing uh, everyone on the other side of the political scale than you. Aren't they all Nazis already? Hell, they run concentration camps on the southern border. Why wouldn't you be willing to throw all these uh, people in cages? They're Nazis who brutally murdered millions, remember? I mean, you, have, you would have no problem just going and collecting those guys up, right? Fuck out of here, why not? And if you're not willing to throw people in jail for not turning over property and money, how do you plan to nationalize these industries? You can't. So you got to be on one side or the other, force or no force. The late R.J. Rummel, a noted scholar of political violence and totalitarian movements and author of Death by Government, coined the term uh, democide to describe large-scale government killings for political purposes. In other words, politically motivated murder. While communists and socialists have not had a monopoly on democide, these movements have been responsible for far more political killing, uh, killings in modern era than any other political movement or form of government, and it's not even close. He concludes that, quote, In the sum, the communists probably have murdered something like 110 million, or, or near two-thirds of all those killed by all governments, quasi-governments, and guerrillas from 1900 to 1987. Of course, the total itself is shocking. It is several times the 38 million battle dead that have been killed in all the century's international and domestic wars. Yet, the probable number of murders by the Soviet Union alone, one communist country, well surpasses the cost of all the wars in the 1900s, guys. Think about that. We had two major world wars. Rummel suspects that the estimate of 110 million killed may be too low, and in fact that the death toll from socialist democide in the 20th century may be as high as 260 million people. So let's break down these countries, and let's uh, break down these numbers. The Soviet Union, commencing with the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, was the first large-scale experiment in socialism. For those who still want to think that there is a meaningful distinction between communism and socialism, it should be noted that the USSR stands for the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, 
uh, whatever Lenin and Stalin thought they were doing, they agreed they were engaged in a socialist enterprise. Rummel writes that the Soviet Union appears the greatest mega murderer of all, apparently killing nearly 61 million people, with Stalin being directly responsible for at least 43 of these de- a million of these deaths, mostly via forced labor camps and government-induced famine. Stalin's government killed between 7 and 11 million people in 1932 and 1933 in what has come to be known as the terror famine. 11 million people in one year, guys. Most of them were Ukrainian peasants who resisted collectivization or failed to meet mandated production quota. So the government said you got to turn this shit over and you have to um your your food that you're uh that you're that you're growing, you have to give it to us x amount of x amount to feed everybody else. And when they didn't do it, he fucking um he murdered them. You know? Cuz cuz you didn't go along with your government. Uh you know, to help all the pe- all the other people, right? So we're justifying killing you to help everyone else. G- great system, guys. Um uh, several distinguished historians have documented this catastrophe. Robert Conquest, in The Harvest of Sorrow, estimated that 11 million people died of starvation or outright murder in European sections of the Soviet Union from 1932 to 1934. Anne Applebaum, in her book The Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine, largely agrees with Conquest's estimates and shows that these deaths arose as a, con- a consequence of deliberate Soviet policy. A year later, uh, a few years later, between 1936 and 1938, Stalin orchestrated a campaign of repression and terror that led to the execution and or murder of some 700,000 people judged to be, ready for it guys, opponents of the socialist regime. Many of those killed were leaders of the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution who Stalin came to regard as traitors or rivals for power. At the time, and for decades thereafter, Western Soviet apologists denied that killings on these scale um, had occurred, or if they did, were justified in order to maintain the regime. It was only in 1956 when Nikita Khrushchevich admitted to Stalin's crimes that Western apologists reluctantly acknowledged that they may have taken place. May have taken place, guys. Rommel estimates that Stalin's regime killed another 13 million people in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, mostly in Poland, during World War II. Adding up all these estimates, he concludes that some 43 million people were murdered under the Stalin regime. And he calculates that the total number of political killings in the Soviet Union under Lenin, Stalin, and their successors probably reaches as high as 61 million And we will discuss Russia, guys, during um, this era in full detail in some future episodes. I actually already have it basically ready to go, but it's super long because we literally got to cover from like 1900, a little bit before 1900 even, um, all the way through World War II to get the full full scale of what went on here because there was all kinds of crazy shit going on. Um, So it's going to be super long and it needs to be multiple parts, guys, probably three episodes at the least, maybe even four. So we're going to kind of roll that out in a series and that's going to be coming up. You know, in the next half year to a year, probably I'll start rolling those out. Um, so let's move on. Then there is this awkward example of Nazism in Germany, right, from 1933 to 1945, which most agree was an unrivaled uh, example of horror and mass murder, uh, except perhaps in comparison to Stalin's Soviet Union and Mao's China. But, you know, I'm, I'm also not an expert. Um, the term Nazi was shorthand for Hitler's political party. The NSDAP, um, initials that stood for the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Um, Hitler and his henchmen were socialist, uh, a bit of a somewhat different stripe than Lenin and Stalin were, because um, he was also a fascist, let's be real about it, um, which, is, which is why the left only talks about Hitler and not Stalin. Hitler is easy to link to the right with his fascism, but fascism and communism are kissing cousins, um, um, if you're going to be honest with yourself. They really are. They're kissing cousins. Um, Scholars have attempted to catalog the scale of Nazi murder, 
but it has proven difficult to do because of the immensity of the enterprise and stretch of the Nazi campaign across nearly the whole of European continent over a period of 12 years. It's estimated that Nazis killed perhaps 21 million people via outright murder in German, France, Poland, and the Soviet Union, including 6 million Jews murdered in concentration camps and others who perished by Nazi institutional practices such as, and this is a common theme, forced labor, euthanasia, forced suicides, medical experimentation, and treatment of prisoners of war. And for, for, for context, guys, those were real concentration camps. I'm talking to you, AOC. That comparison is insensitive and egregious. I'm sorry. Um, the estimate does not count millions of mass casualties in the European war launched by Hitler, nor does it include the deaths of as many as 1.9 million ethnic Germans uh, uh, when they were expelled from Eastern European territories, mostly Poland, between 1945 and 1950. Following the communist revolution in China in 1948, Mao Zedong launched a, a series of campaigns that put him in a league with Stalin and Hitler in terms of the number of people murdered, tortured, and imprisoned. In the first phase of the revolution, from 1948 to 1951, Mao, uh, Mao sought to destroy the poverty-owning class, I'm sorry, the property-owning class, the people that had property, by killing at least one landlord in every village via public execution. He was, he was making a statement. Like, look, I'm going to kill one a landowner in every village to let you motherfuckers know you ain't, you ain't owning land here, guys. Uh, the government owns it. The people own it, right? Community property. No more public, I mean, no more private property. Everything's public property now. Um, one of Miles' deputies said in 1948... That as many as 30 million landlords would have to be eliminated. That's fucking insanity, guys. Hundreds of thousands were shot, buried alive, dismembered, and otherwise tortured to death in the early years of the regime. Mao and his comrades killed perhaps 4.5 million Chinese during this period, according to estimates. And that figure may actually be on the low end. And I agree. Uh, Mao was just getting started in his campaigns of terror and murder. During the 1950s, the Chinese communists carried out murder campaigns against Christians and other undesirables, causing the deaths of thousands and perhaps hundreds of thousands of innocent people. You guys hate Christians too, right? And undesirables, you know, those deplorables. Um, in the so-called Great Leap Forward, uh, a, mis a misnomer if there ever was one, uh, Mao accelerated his campaign for collectivization and industrialization, emulating the best he could Stalin's collectivist campaign in the 1930s with eerily similar results. Frank DeCotter's carefully researched book, Mao's Great Famine, places that the number of Chinese killed via murder, torture, starvation, imprisonment, and other uh, causes at a staggering 45 million over that four-year period of the Great Leap Forward. That's 10 million people a year if you can do math. 10 million people a year in a Great Leap Forward that was supposed to be for the people. That was going to help all the people. You know, that was, that was a new deal. That was the new Green Deal for them, guys, in case you were wondering. In Tombstone, the Great Chinese Famine, 1958 to 1962, the journalist Yang Jishang, using government sources, places the number of unnatural deaths at 36 million as communist officials seized land and produce from peasants to redistribute everywhere and systematically killed all who resisted or stood in the way of the regime's collectivist policies. Back to my initial question to you back in the, uh, at the beginning. Are you willing to do this for people who don't want to uh, give their shit away? Some have referred to this episode as the single greatest mass murder in recorded history. I mean, you, got, you guys want redistribution too, right? Again, what are you willing to do to achieve it? 
1966, Mao launched the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution, designed to purify the communist ideology in China by purging capitalists and remnants of traditional beliefs across the country. Got to get rid of all them people that want to have capitalism. They got to go. That's why we're failing. This is a stock response among socialists when confronted with the failure of their schemes to live up to the theoretical promises. Counter-revolutionary elements are to blame. The brutal campaign of state-sponsored murder, torture, and persecution went on for a full decade through different phases of insanity, uh, finally ending with Mao's death in 1976. 1976, guys. That's six years before my birth. This isn't something that happened in like medieval times. This happened during your parents' childhood. These were modern-day governments. Merrill Goldman, a noted scholar of modern China, uh, China, estimates that as many as 100 million people were persecuted during the Cultural Revolution, and between 5 and 10 million people were killed via executions, communal massacres, and starvation. The Chinese government today is understandably embarrassed by this barbaric episode in its recent history and has held back records that would allow scholars to arrive at a more exact estimate of number uh, of the numbers killed, injured, and persecuted. Over the period of just three decades, Mao's socialist government was responsible for the killing of some 56, 50 to 60 million Chinese, most of those casualties being incurred in three brutal episodes of political cleansing and socialist reform. These three communist dictators, Stalin, Hitler, and Mao, were thus responsible for the murders of well over 100 million people between the years 1930 and 1976, so 46 years. In the Hall of Fame of Socialism, these three occupied exalted platforms. But they're not the only ones. So moving along to some of the uh, lesser-known episodes in this bloody history of communism, Vietnam represents a difficult case. It is difficult to distangle outright political murders from those killed in the military and revolutionary uh, conflicts that engulfed the country more or less continuously from 1945 to 1975. Rummel estimates that around 4 million Vietnamese lost their lives in these struggles, about 10% of the total population. Of this number, he estimates that 1.8 million were murdered as victims of democide. The communist government of North Vietnam, which for reference, after 1975 was the whole of Vietnam, was responsible for the overwhelming proportion of these deaths, nearly 1.7 of the 1.8 million killed via assassination, execution, forced labor, starvation, and communal massacres. Rummel attributes most of the other deaths, only 100,000 or so, to the government of South Vietnam, but the stark fact remains that in a long conflict between the two sides, communists committed more than 90% of all political killings. In Cuba, it's estimated, estimated that Castro's government killed at least 73,000 people for political reasons, and perhaps as many as 140,000 in a country with a population of only 11 million today, but just 6 million when Castro seized power in 1958. Castro staged hundreds of public executions after he seized power. He imprisoned thousands of opponents and suspected opponents and seized property from landowners and foreign corporations. Back to that seizing property thing. Compared to his communist brethren, though, Castro appears almost humane in terms of the scale of killings, apparently limiting them to real as opposed to just like imaginary adversaries. Like Stalin had a real big problem with just like believing everyone was his political foe. So he probably killed a lot of people who actually weren't, um, you know, just to be honest about it. Um, Though in reaching this conclusion, one must leave to the side 
that Castro did have a wish to launch a nuclear attack against the United States in 1962 in retaliation for the American, American demand for the removal of offensive nuclear weapons from the island. Like other socialists, Castro was always ready to consider extreme measures, you know, like nuking people who don't agree with you. In Cambodia, between 1975 and 1979, the Khmer uh, uh regime, under the leadership of Pol Pot, murdered some 2 million people in a country of just 7 million souls. A war crimes tribunal set up in 2001, so 2001 when I graduated high school, they were just, you know, doing military tribunals on this, so this is real recent, guys. Um, by a, set up by a successor government in Cambodia, also verified these totals. In this remarkable campaign, Pol Pot and his comrades sought to follow the socialist example set by Mao, that is, to purge the socialist movement of impure elements, which resulted in the massacre of religious and national minorities, intellectuals, and those living in cities because they had money. Hundreds of thousands of victims were murdered in the so-called killing fields of Cambodia, which were various sites across the country where um, these soldiers and officials carried out executions and buried victims in mass graves. This slaughter ranks near the top of the list of socialist atrocities in the terms of proportion of the population killed. Two million killed out of a population of seven million that's crazy. That's like a third, guys. That's a, little, that's a little less than a third. North Korea, or or which goes by the laughable name, the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea. I guess you just put democratic in front of things and, you know, it just makes it all much better, right? The Democratic People's Republic of North Korea uh, must be judged as the most bizarre, though, of all the socialist states, which is saying something in the view of the standard established by the regimes we already discussed. The fact that it is a large-scale prison camp with an extremely controlled population does not make it much different from uh, other notable socialist regimes. It's the fact that it's a dynastic government run by the Kim dynasty, now in its third generation of rule, with the family succession written into the fundamental law of the country is the main justification for the bizarre or Orwellian label it has obtained. Uh, Rummel estimates that between 700,000 and 3.5 million people have been murdered in the North Korean democide, with a, a reasonable midpoint being around 1.6 million. It's kind of difficult to quantify the victims, he writes, uh, because North Korea is a closed society that guards its documents and denies outsiders any information about murders, executions, torture, and the like. Uh, Rummel writes that the great proportion of those killings um, by the regime died in prison camps from forced labor, starvation, and illness. During the Korean War, communist officials followed North Korean troops as they advanced into South Korea and systematically massacred South Korean government officials, former officials, and, wait for it, anti-communists. So anyone against them, murdered. Then they repeated these massacres as North Korean troops retreated back through South Korea, back to the north. In addition, the regime impressed some 400,000 South Koreans. That's, that's impressed as a... a is a, is, a, is a nice way for me to say enslaved. They enslaved 400,000 South Koreans into their army, a large proportion of whom died from being forced into the most dangerous and laborious assignments. North Korea also failed to account for many thousands of American prisoners of war. North Korean democide has claimed so far the lives of 1 to 2 million in a country of only 25 million people. And, that, and that's still going on to this day. All right, last but not least, guys, Venezuela. Um, and more likely, this has unfolded in your lifetime and right in front of your eyes. Literally right in front of your eyes. All you got to do is look. And like I said at the beginning, this should be our real-life example. 
the contemporary case of Venezuela is difficult from other experiments in socialism because it's not implemented or implicated in mass murder or democide, at least at least not to the extent cataloged above, right? Or at least not yet. The, Ve- the Venezuelan case is rather one of economic collapse, social chaos, and mass suffering due to the inevitable effects of socialist policies. In Venezuela, socialists did not seize power by violent revolution like these other cases, but were instead, you ready for it? Elected initially by the voters. Sound familiar, right? That's democratic socialism. They voted for it. The government just said this is what we're going to have. now. they voted for this, guys. This is also somewhat in the manner of Hitler's uh, uh, accession to power. In socialist regimes elsewhere, the kind of economic failure now taking place in Venezuela has provoked uh, repression, extra-legal decree, the elimination of legal uh, protections, and large-scale murder. Legal and constitutional protections right now are evaporating in Venezuela at a rapid pace. But the regime there has not yet resorted to large-scale killings. Perhaps, and I'm just I'm just spitballing here, perhaps that's because the civilized world watching uh, uh, has decided that mass murder is no longer a practical option, right? Because everyone's looking at them. It's not, it's not really practical just go around murdering people um, in the open because, you know, we got TVs, everyone's looking. Um, now, I will admit that re- that represents progress, I guess, of a certain kind. Um, Venezuela was among the more prosperous of South American countries for most of the 20th century, guys. So this wasn't a poor country. This was a very rich country. Uh, owning, to a, uh, owning that success to a diversified economy and more recently to abundant oil reserves that allowed the country to accumulate export surpluses. Tons of oil. That circumstance... Uh, that circumstance promoted a higher standard of living in the country, though it also drew more labor labor and capital into the oil industry and put the country's eco- economy at the mercy, mercy of the ebb and flow of international oil prices. When Hugo Chavez won the presidency in 1998, voted in, he moved quickly to nationalize the oil industry. You hear that all the time, right? Let's nationalize healthcare. Let's nationalize everything. Let's na- nationalize business, big business. Um, they, he raised taxes on corporations. And then what you guys want to do too? Let's rate. Let's just, you know, why not? They got all the money. Let's just tax them to death. And redistributed. Don't you want to do that too? Redistribute shit, right? He redistributed land and income across the population. So income redistribution, land and. Uh, land redistribution, higher taxes on the corporations, nationalized industry through democratic socialism, guys. Exactly what you're asking for right this second. Sounds familiar, right? He also supported a revised constitution for the country, giving the president a longer term and more power and granted uh, and granting new social and democratic rights to the population. Rising oil prices in the early years of the regime allowed Chavez to increase social spending and distribute funds to uh, to constituent groups. So it was kind of working because they had tons of money. Uh, even as foreigners and foreign corporations began to withdraw capital and businesses from the country due to unfriendly business laws. So because they had a bunch of oil money, they started passing this all out and everything was fine and dandy. And they didn't feel the effects of all these businesses leaving private, these private companies and all this private capital before the government seized it, they took it out. That's what happens. They dipped. Since socialists do not believe in the price system, in case you didn't know, you should probably look that up. They believe in, um, they don't They don't believe in the supply and demand. They just believe in, you know, we'll set the price of what we feel is fair. Um, um, Chavez had little understanding that oil prices could go down as well as up. You can't control the price of goods. Uh, you can control the price of goods in your country. You can't control the price of, uh, of a global commodity. 
which is what oil is, global commodity. It follows the free market pricing of supply and demand. So the oil prices collapsed in the Great Recession of 2008, leading to inflation, collapse of the currency, more capital flight, so more people dipping their shit because now they're coming after um, you know, people that aren't so rich because they now need to keep funding all these programs they put in. You know, the government promised you this life. They got to fulfill it. The government doesn't actually make nothing. They got to take it from you. Um, so more capital flight and general economic chaos and mass suffering. All inevitable consequences of socialist policies removing private business and investment. So no one's left to produce anything, goods nor food. You know, not, it's not just that fucking TV or phone, guys. It's the food you eat. In response to protest and mounting opposition, the socialist government has predictably started cracking down on critics. You can't talk bad about my side. Shut that speech down. We need a majority vote to keep this democratic socialism. Sound familiar yet? In 2013, Nicolas Maduro the successor to Chavez following his death requested the passing of a law to permit him to rule by decree. You know, let's become communism now, guys, because that, that, you know, that way I can have more control. That, that's the only way to work. We just, just got to give me more control for this to work. The next year he created, because, you know, this was how you give him, this is how you give up your right because he promises you something. He creates the Ministry of Supreme Social happiness to coordinate government social programs. I mean, how could anything named supreme social happiness not work? We all want that, right? And if it's in the headlines, it must be true. I mean, he's fucking calling it supreme social happiness. How can this not bring supreme social happiness to the masses? Our fucking leader told us it would. It has to be fucking true. Well, guess what, guys? The measures have not worked. There has not been a return to prosperity and stability. And, of course, they are never going to work with socialism being a doctrine of power rather than one of workable economics. That's the reality of it, guys. It's a doctrine of power and seizing your shit so they can control you. For reference, they actually, um, they're actually the second to last, second to last, ranked country in the world on the economic freedom index that we talked about earlier. They have the most socialist economy, uh, economic policy in the world. And it's democratic socialism, guys. Not regular socialism. It's the one you like. And they're... Uh, uh, <laughs> just look up what's going on in Venezuela. If you want to live in that in that scenario, I mean, you're better than me. Venezuela has now experienced a many-sided crisis of economics, uh, mass suffering, and democracy, and democracy, that word you love. Some say that Venezuelan voters chose this course when they elected Chavez, and so they deserve to reap the consequences that they have sown. Whether or not this is so, perhaps there is some value in letting the suffering in Venezuela run its course so that the obvious lesson from that experience will finally sink in for others vulnerable to the socialist temptations. One of our television networks would perform a public service by documenting chapter and verse how this latest socialism, uh, socialist catastrophe was staged. But they won't. The question is often asked, why does the same thing happen over and over in socialist regimes? Socialist plans and policies, five-year plans repeated again and again, collectivization of uh, agriculture, nationalization of industry, the concentration of power in the hands of a few, lead inevitably, lead inevitably to economic collapse, repression, large-scale killing, and democide. It has happened according to script wherever socialism has been tried. Socialism always and everywhere begins with humanistic promises and ends in barbarianism. 
F.A. Hayek answered this question as long ago as 1944 when he published The Road to Serfdom, his classic uh, critique of socialism. At that time, the socialist experiment was still in its early stages, with just two examples from which to draw lessons, the communist regime of Russia and Hitler's uh, Nazi regime in Germany. That was it. The brutal history of socialism was yet to fully play out uh, in the post-war era. But the lessons Hayek drew from Stalin and Hitler were turned out to apply perfectly to Mao, Castro, the Kim dynasty, and all the socialist tyrants, uh, tyrants who came before. In socialist movements, as Hayek pointed out, there's a tendency for the most brutal and unethical people to rise to the top because they are the types who are willing. Remember, I asked you that question, are you willing? Because they are willing to take the necessary steps to seize power and who relish in the kind of absolute power that socialism promises to the leader or the leaders. Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, Mao, and Pol Pot. These were not the kinds of people one might have encountered in faculty lounges or middle-class town meetings like our leaders should be. That's where, we're, that's where we should find our leaders. They were black guards and thugs, one and all. Thuggish being the key attribute for rising to the top in a, mu- in a movement in which power went to those willing to experiment with the most extreme measures. Socialist policies, moreover, are always going to fail because it is impossible for central planners efficiently to allocate capital, goods, and services across a large economy. I mean, what does our government do official, uh, efficiently right now at a large scale? Don't worry, I'll wait, because the only answer you got is kill people from our military. That's all they do good, is kill people and imprison people. That's it. That's all they do good at a large scale. So let's give them all the power to do that. Why not? I mean, fucking, what, what could go wrong there, guys? Socialism, after all, in my mind, was always a political doctrine and never a plausible economic theory. When there arose shortages of food or housing or military equipment, when socialist policies failed, leaders were faced with a choice of either admitting failure and abandoning the socialist path or doubling down on their policies and preserving their power. And it was always in their nature to choose the latter course and thus to press forward with more extreme measures, which typically involve the identification of scapegoats and counter-revolutionary elements as the causes of failure. It's always someone else's fault, right? And that's what they're telling you right now. It's not your fault you're struggling. It's the evil rich guy. It's the evil Republican. It's the evil, your, your evil countrymen on the other side. They're the ones to blame. Not us that's been passing these laws for fucking 50 years. We're not to blame. Give us all the power. Fuck it. We've only fucked this thing up completely. I mean, you all agree the system's fucked. In what in what, in what reality in what reality or logical thinking would you give them more power? That's fucking moronic. From here it was but a few steps to the catastrophic uh, uh, catastrophic outcomes I described: show trials, terror famines, mass starvation, cultural revolutions, killing fields, and democide. To return to the question I posed at the beginning, is socialism a hate crime in the way you like to define it? The record speaks for itself. It's a doctrine of tyranny, mass murder, and human suffering on a vast scale. What should be done about it is a different matter. The important thing is to remember what history has left for us through the pain and suffering of hundreds of millions of people on the wrong side of a political wave during the 1900s. They died for us. And to remember we are all in this together. Together we stand, divided we fall. I really believe that. And let's be uh, real honest here for for a second, guys, right? No system we keep or implement will be successful if we are constantly at war. We can't afford it, monetarily or morally. We have no money, guys. Our country is bankrupt. Whether you want to deny that, 
or not, it's a fact. We are $22 trillion in debt. $22 trillion. I don't think people really fathom the absurdity of that number. There aren't enough rich people in the entire world that could pay that. You guys know, you guys understand that, right? There's not enough rich. There's not enough riches in the world to pay that. Nobody talks about the debt anymore, though. Like, if we just don't talk about it, it'll just go away. We aren't paying real attention to it because we have historically low and artificially deflated interest rates. Even with that, you know how much we pay, guys, in interest rates? All you people that hate interest rates on your, uh, your credit cards, you ready for this one? The United States government pays a half a trillion dollars a year, a year, half a trillion dollars a year in interest payments to the central fucking bank. That's $500 billion a year of your tax money going to nothing. Nothing. And that's at current spending and interest rates before, before adding $10 trillion more a year in spending in these democratic socialist programs being promised to you in exchange for your vote. They want like a four, they want like a $14 trillion budget a year, guys, to implement all this shit. In what reality is that plausible? Do the fucking math. Let's be real for a second. They're goading you for a vote and then, then take all your money and they're going to laugh at you. Your kids are going to be crippled with that debt and you're putting it on their shoulders. You are literally enslaving them. I don't have kids. This doesn't affect me like it will most of you. I really hope I'm wrong here and I'm being like overly dramatic, but history says I'm not. And I say these things not from a right-wing or Republican platform or as a moral condemnation to Democrats, progressives, or socialists. Because I believe in, in I believe in the people, the people, the people who want socialism. I believe that in their heart they really feel that they're going to be helping people, and that's and that's noble to me. So I'm not knocking you for this belief. Trust me. I say this as a libertarian who believes in the individuality of all humans and the freedom and liberty that that represents. We can do better. We need to do better. We have the ability to do better. I just strongly believe the government can't do it for us. Give us our money back and let us help our brothers and sisters. We can decide which businesses get our money through the power of purchasing through the consumer. Think about it, guys. If the government didn't have all your money, they couldn't give it away in subsidies to big corporations, right? Which is actually a form of socialism and crony capitalism or corporatism, not free market economics that has no place in any free market economics, whether they, uh, the the left wants to tell you that or not, that it's absolutely socialist policies when they give you those ta- when they give those uh, corporations tax breaks. That's a socialist. That's a socialist uh, policy, guys. Sorry to break your bubble. That's not free market. That's crony capitalism, and corporatism. That's not what we're about. Uh. All right, guys, that's all I got for you. I'm going to end it there. Uh, I'm going to wrap this episode up. Um, I'll be back next Monday, like I said, so get your mind right for that. Uh, Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite listening platform. Follow the social media accounts to keep up to date with what's going down, mainly at Chromatic Distortion Podcast on Instagram. Uh, And don't forget to check out Musically Meditated Podcast for my episode and all the great content Joe is putting out. Like always, the world is full of good people. If you can't find one, be one. I'll catch you on the flip side. You have just witnessed the lyrical stylistics of chromatic distortion.